Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, everyone. Last time out, in last time's introduction, I said that I was going to be chatting with Dai about this episode. I'll kill him. We changed our mind. We're going to do that in two episodes. So this is just a normal episode. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions, why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is episode 9, Brahms' The Piano Pieces by Dmitry Alexeev. Actually, as I mentioned last time, the full name of this album is <clears throat> Brahms' The Piano Pieces, OP 117, 118, and 119. Uh, it also says 10 intermezzi ballad with an E at the end in G minor romance in F Rhapsody in E flat all performed by Dmitry Alexeev. Dai informs me that OP stands for opus and I think that this is a great place to take a moment to talk about classical music and how much I love it. Eh. From an aesthetic perspective I like classical music well enough. I get the basic concepts and can appreciate what's going on. I took a music appreciation course in college, and I had a good time. While I have not been known to slap it on for funsies, it gives me similar aesthetic vibes to genres like techno or EDM, which I do very much like. It's a nice mood setter, background music while I'm working, and it sometimes makes genuinely interesting aesthetic points. On the other hand, the notation descriptions that have developed over the years to describe classical music, like the ones on the cover of this album, are something I do not particularly understand well, and this project has kind of ramped up my resentment of the cultural rubble surrounding this type of music. So, in other words, it's not necessarily the music, it's the fans, and the critics, and the publishers, and... I need to admit up front that a big part of my frustration here has to do with the fact that classical music makes alphabetization a maddening task, particularly in the concept of this project. Part of the problem is that classical music places a different emphasis on the relationship between the composer and the performer than other musical styles. In pop music, for the most part, the emphasis is on the, let's see, the IP of the composer. The, they get all the royalties, and in most cases, they are the brand. Sure, there are cover songs, and yes, most top 40 pop acts work with anonymous songwriters behind the scenes, but from the public standpoint, it is the K-pop group BTS that does the song Butter. They don't care that a committee composed of Jenna Andrews, Rob Grimaldi, Stephen Kirk, RM, Alex Bilowitz, Sebastian Garcia, and Ron Perry all collaborated to write the song, presumably working in a medium-tier hotel near the studio in one of the industry's signature writing sessions, as aides brought everyone bottled water with lemon and cups of coffee from Starbucks. The music listening public does not see that side of the equation that's all behind the screen. In terms of the branding and from a legal standpoint, it is a BTS song. The listening public doesn't care about any of that. BTS premiered it and it will remain a BTS song no matter who covers it. 
And before the stands start to swarm, that's not a condemnation of BTS. That's just how pop music works. If you don't like how mechanical that all is, well, there's other genres. In any case, that's how pop music has worked for nearly a century now. In more traditional music genres, the situation is somewhat flipped in ways that are kind of subtle. Most folk tunes are basically anonymous, taken from traditional arrangements made before attribution was a thing amongst illiterate peasantry on the countryside. For them, music was just a fun thing to do at night, around the fire, watch the space, and if Bill came up with a nice tune, it was not a problem if Barbara came up with a variation on that theme a week later, the novelty was honestly refreshing. As an example, the song Seven Drunken Nights, made famous internationally by the Dubliners in the 1970s, is based on a traditional Anglo-Scottish tune called Our Goodman that was first written down in 1776. One wonders if the Irish nationalists in the Dubliners' core fan base know of this provenance, but honestly, they probably wouldn't care. The emphasis is not on the originator of the song so much as the arrangement choices and the performance. When you have a rich tradition to choose from, an artist can make an aesthetic point by these choices, and no one will think they're just copying other people's work. If you've heard the same song by the Chieftains and by Flogging Molly, you would not bat an eye, and it would be very clear that both groups have something to contribute to the interpretation of that song. I will actually have an example of that exact pairing in the YouTube links. But, and this is the key thing, it's clear where the emphasis is in these situations. While compilation albums certainly exist, the main focus is on the performer in general. Classical music as a genre, as it exists now, seems to place an equal emphasis on the performance and the composition. This in some ways seems like the correct position from the point of view of philosophy of aesthetics, but it makes the genre difficult to understand for outsiders. On the one hand, when listening to today's record, we should certainly be attempting to appreciate Brahms' unique talents as a composer in the context of the other composers in the classical tradition. On the other hand, Dmitry Alexeev would also seem to have the opportunity to make great contributions to our experience, not only in terms of the raw musicality of the performance of the pieces presented, but also in the selection of those pieces to put together onto this record. Though, of course, as with any other recorded medium, the producers will have a lot to say on these points as well. And I guess, given the name The Piano Pieces by Brahms, it's sort of like, well, this is all of them. But anyway... All that said, on an entirely selfish inside baseball note, classical music is just really frustrating for me to own because it refuses to play well with any kind of easy alphabetization scheme. As it happens, I have a few dozen classical pieces in my collection, oddly enough, mostly featuring compositions by Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. At first, I alphabetized them all together in the B section, but then I started getting albums with multiple composers and one performer, so I switched to alphabetizing by the performer. Then I found a record with multiple performers and multiple composers. Then I went and had a lie down and some spearmint-flavored seltzer to cool my humors. Ultimately, I decided to alphabetize by the first listed performer's name. God help me. I'll never be able to find these records again, but at least it avoided making the B section of this project an ungodly slog. As a quick aside, you may wonder why I have so many classical records given that I am not a big fan. That is sort of the point of this show, actually. It turns out that I can't blame this on my parents, nor even my wife. In fact, all of us were scratching our heads about this when I sat down to write this episode. Ultimately, Di reminded me that I had a coworker when I first moved to Rhode Island who had a friend who was dumping their records, and I happily took them. Basically, three quarters of a banker's box worth of random-ass records. 
I was excited, but it turned out to be all classical and folk music. There was one really good find. An RCA record from before modern vinyl was settled on as the proper material for records to be made out of, and before the modern groove width and speed standards were settled. So basically, it was this fantastically cool 100-year-old record that didn't work with the needle on our turntable, and it felt like it was made from the same material as shirt buttons. I asked around at the local record shops, and it turned out to be like over 100 years old or more. And I was pretty happy with that. And then I came home and found that the child had stepped on it and broken it into a million pieces. Anyway, that's why the records are in the basement instead of in the living room. And that is the provenance of this particular record and probably most of the rest of the really weird records in this project. Okay, so now that we've discussed my alphabetization neuroses and the provenance of this particular record, let's talk about Brahms. The compositions on this record are all by Johannes Brahms, and were composed towards the end of his career. He came from a somewhat musical family. His father was a horn player in the Hamburg militia, which apparently was enough to give you a living. Johannes was born in 1833 and died in 1897, putting him at the tail end of the golden age of classical composition in Europe. The era saw many changes, both to the genre we call classical music and to European society in general. These things are intertwined, and as such, he was seen as something of a transitional figure. The irony is that he assiduously avoided interacting with these changes over most of his life, but in the end, this too was a choice that would impact the genre that would come to be known as classical music. This will all make a bit more sense in a minute. The biggest change underway in Europe was the changing nature of power, wealth, and class. The aristocracy, traditional patrons of orchestral music, were being confronted by an increasingly powerful and aspirational middle class, who increasingly had the collective wealth to, amongst other things, pay to see musical performances and buy sheet music, which is very important. As paying customers, and as musicians themselves, their tastes had an impact on the choices made in the world of music. Intellectual changes accompanied this shift, as Europe moved from the Enlightenment into a kind of dark romanticism. Now, the dichotomy between the Enlightenment and Romanticism is a very complicated story. The cliché is that the Enlightenment valued only pure reason, while Romanticism valued emotion only. But that sort of does not do justice to either intellectual tradition. It is maybe better to say that, at least initially, Romanticism valued passion in addition to reason. It would also be silly to say that Enlightenment-era philosophy completely disregarded emotion in any way. It would be, for example, silly to say that passion had nothing to do with the works of Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart, artists whose works were celebrated in Brahms' time and personalities who were still within living memory for many at the time. These artists had worked to create emotional, passionate experiences from within the structures and using the vocabularies of the European orchestral musical tradition. That tradition became identified with the Enlightenment, just based on time period and financing and all that stuff. And since in other fields, the Enlightenment was usually associated with neoclassical revivals of Greek and Roman ideas, these composers started to be described as classical, even though nothing from Greek and Roman antiquity survived in the world of music. So these guys were very much European. They weren't classical, really. But those Goths at the Mall also never burned down Rome, so... None of this stuff makes sense. But I digress. By the time of Brahms' childhood, things had shifted in Europe. The French Revolution had unleashed the idea of nationalism as the romantic sibling to the rationality of liberalism, both of which the great powers of Europe had attempted to stuff back into the closet after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. 
Hi, Andrew, the editor here. I want to put my degree to some use. In short, while it may seem that the Enlightenment philosophy and Romanticism are at odds of each other, we need to remember that the revolutionary tradition of the 19th century, of the period up till 1849-1850, was defined by an alliance between the two groups. The great powers of Europe saw both the uh, Romantic and Enlightenment tradition as a threat to the established Volmat's order, you know, the order of Metternich. In the same way that 1968 would be defined by an alliance between students reading Marx and Sartre, despite the two being relatively incompatible, despite what Sat may tell you, the two, Romanticism and Enlightenment philosophy, are politically intertwined and politically aligned. So despite the idea that they are fundamentally separate, they exist together simultaneously and work towards similar political goals. In this case, in the 19th century, that is a, a national liberal vision as symbolized by the Frankfurt Parliament in 1848-1849. In 1848, when Brahms was 15 years old, these pent-up frustrations had burst out into the year of revolutions, as pretty much every country on continental Europe faced down popular liberal uprisings. Ultimately, all but the revolution in France failed, and this had the knock-on effect of discrediting liberalism while energizing the more radical nationalist and socialist movements for change. Ultimately, it was the nationalists that won this debate in the short and medium term, and this had a major impact on the intellectual and artistic life of Europe. The second footnote I would like to make here real quick is that the second French Revolution also failed. Jonathan Sperber has a very good point about this, which is that 1848 was not the year of revolution, but rather the years of revolution. So it started in 1848, of course, but it went on into 1849. The French Second Republic lasted until 1851 under the tutorship of Louis Napoleon. Of course, the question of how successful was the Second Republic when it was ruled by a Bonaparte successor who was about to overthrow the Republican government and declare himself emperor. So you can argue when the Second French Republican experiment became a failure. However, the French Second Republic was unfortunately also a failure, and I will defend Louis Blanc to the death. You can see why Ben never talks about the 19th century, because then I started showing up. In short, what you can see with the success of nationalism in 19th century Europe is a synthesis between conservative aristocracy trying to preserve its power and liberal idealism slash liberal goals, in this case the creation of a German state, or a French state even, as you can see in Bonapartism. That is the fact that liberalism is very pliable and can be moved in different ways to work for aristocracy, but it can also be moved in other ways. For example, in what Theodore Zeldin called the genius in politics, where you have uh, utopian socialists who come out of the liberal tradition and are trying to create essentially proto-socialism, which Marx then actually mastered by turning a scientific liberalism into modern socialism. In short, the success of liberalism is the success of the aristocracy, that is Arno Meyer, the persistence of the old regime. Anyways, this is a music podcast, not a podcast about 1848 and my theories in the 19th century. The link between this political history and classical music might not be totally obvious, but keep in mind that the failure of the revolutions of 1848 meant that political discussions in public were restricted in most of Europe. Discussions about music and art were not restricted, and so in very complex ways, using vocabularies that were only really clear to the people at the time, aesthetic debates became proxies for serious political and intellectual conversations. The key intellectual moment of all this change was to be the German Romantics. In literature and philosophy, you had Goethe and Nietzsche, and in the world of music, you had people like Wagner and Liszt. They were united by an intellectual desire to get back to medieval traditions in search of authentic, universal experiences. These experiences were sought, somewhat paternalistically, in the noble savagery of the common people, but it ultimately served political ends. 
Searching for universal experiences amongst the mass of the population suggested, implicitly, that common people were the real root of legitimacy, not God or an international treaty. It also offered a potential way to unify the high-minded goals of revolutionaries with the passions of the proletariat. This kind of democratic populism was common across all of the European romantics of this time, from the rising nationalism of Hungary to the Scottish and Irish intellectuals scouring the countryside for old women's folk songs that they could write down and publish in Edinburgh. In Germany, this romantic intellectual energy had a peculiar edge. The Middle Ages, beloved of the romantics and supposed authentic root of peasant culture, was a time when Germany had been united in a strong Holy Roman Empire. For frustrated German nationalists seeking to reunite their country, this appeal to the past was an implicit criticism of the monarchies of Germany which had continued to keep the country divided. Brahms was not unaffected by these changes. A precocious talent, his middle-class parents and teachers sought a future for him as an unpretentious gig performer. This was something of the family business, as his father had this kind of career. But Brahms revered Beethoven and Bach, and starting at age five he began composing music much to the frustration of his teachers who saw this as a distraction from his real goal, which was learning to play the instrument so that he could just do gigs. Ultimately, he met an exiled Hungarian revolutionary named Ede Romanyi, and the two toured Europe with Brahms on piano as accompanist for the slightly older violinist. Incidentally, this was a time when Hungarian culture was all the rage in Europe, due to their tragic role in the Revolution of 1848, and due to some unique elements of their constitution, which we don't have time to get into here. Suffice it to say, the tour was very popular, and it got Brahms noticed by a series of German composers, culminating in an introduction to Robert Schumann. Schumann was a prominent composer and critic, and his support allowed Brahms to take up a career as a composer. The two became very close, and when Schumann eventually attempted suicide and had to be committed to a mental asylum, Brahms moved into his house and took on the responsibility of looking over the older man's wife and business assets. Sadly, 19th century medical health care being what it was, Schumann did eventually die of his illness, and Brahms looked after the family for the rest of his own life. But back before this tragedy, Brahms and Schumann had become important personalities in the circles of music criticism in Germany. In this capacity, they came up against the so-called New School of Music, which is to say the German Romantic composers like Wagner and Liszt, who were searching for passionate authenticity in the common people, and composed works about Germany's heroic past. A major part of this movement was a complete rejection of the older forms of the classical tradition in favor of looser structures and folk influences. Given his background with Hungarian revolutionaries and all that, we might expect Brahms to join the New School of Music. But Brahms also valorized the compositional heroes of the Enlightenment, and he became part of a group writing an attack on the ideas of the new school of music. Unfortunately, the article he was writing was leaked before it was really ready, and basically, he was cancelled. <laughs> because of his sort of half-finished ideas, he was dragged through the musical press, lampooned as old-fashioned and out of touch. This ended up being one of those critical moments in a person's life. Other composers might have gotten down in the ring and punched back in the press, or challenged Wagner to a duel or something equally romantic. But the point here is that Brahms was not a romantic. He retired from the conversation. He let his work speak for itself and never engaged in the public discourse again. Which is interesting because this is a time when discourse was as much part of the music as the music was, at least in Germany. Which may be part of why Brahms ended up moving to France. 
Despite this, his compositions became more and more popular as he explored rhythmic and melodically sophisticated territory, but always from within the confines of classical music structures and without any kind of pseudo-intellectual narrative surrounding it like Wagner did. By the end of his relatively short life, he was one of the most prominent composers in Europe and had dozens of students and mentees, including people like Schumann, who would come to dominate the classical music scene. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the short term, the retirement of Brahms left the field, as it were, of battle to the German romantics, and they duly became very popular in Germany. But their modern reputation sort of belies this. In fact, their reputation is deeply tarnished because, as time went on, they increasingly and alarmingly swung towards nihilistic populism and away from morality and rationality. With Germany consolidated as a country by the military caste of the Prussian aristocracy, the German romantics were embraced by the new state as part of its nation-building program. Even as the formerly revolutionary Wagner and the others became increasingly anti-Semitic and revolutionary, their work became more and more entwined with the ideology of German militarism, an ideology that had a rather unfortunate end state. Now, ultimately, people like Wagner and Nietzsche are not responsible for the Holocaust. Arguably, the Germany of 1913 was no more immoral a political system than the British Empire, given what the British had been doing in India. But the contribution of the German Romantics was part of a cultural and political process that ended at Auschwitz, and their reputation is irretrievably damaged as a result, for better or for worse, justified or not. And then there's Brahms. Brahms was German, but was an internationalist lover of a European intellectual tradition. This tradition was increasingly seen as elitist and out of touch, but not by everyone. Many in the rising middle classes loved classical music, both from genuinely aesthetic appreciation and also because of an aspirational admiration of the aristocracy. For those enamored of this tradition, Brahms was the future in many ways. The classical tradition would diverge from Romanticism. As such, classical music as a whole was not tarnished by the intellectual and moral dead end of nationalism. But in distancing itself from populism, it also gradually embraced elitism, valuing artistic purity over mass appeal, becoming more and more locked into classical structures and orchestral arrangements that relied on a language increasingly unavailable to the uneducated, classical music's mass-scale relevance would gradually wane over the next two centuries until, after World War II, it became a niche genre. So the choices made by Brahms were also a kind of dead end. So much for our composer. There is much less to say about our performer. Dmitry Alexeev was born in 1947 
and studied at the Moscow Conservancy. He toured internationally even before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and ultimately moved to London. As of 2021, he was teaching at the Royal College of Music. That's it. I even checked the Russian Wikipedia. I did find a few interviews with him on YouTube. He seems like a nice man. He's very passionate about music and teaching, and seems like an extremely conscientious teacher and uh, performer. Nothing I say in today's episode should be taken to reflect badly on him. He seems sweet, and he did a good job on the record. There is a story here about the Russian classical scene. Why was the Russian state so obsessed with cranking out people who worked in classical music and ballet during the Cold War? Isn't that not very communist? How is that going today? But honestly, this is already looking like a really long episode, and we will probably have another chance to talk about this in the future. So let's call it there today for scene setting and get into the record itself. The packaging of this record is basically boring, as is contractually required of every classical record not composed by Philip Glass. The front is a picture of Dmitry Alexeev looking into the middle distance and wearing a button-up shirt. The back is a massive block of text that gives a short bio about Mr. Alexeev and a horribly pretentious discussion of the Brahms compositions by James Durant, a person who I can find nothing about online. The sleeve is blank. The jacket text informs me that the sheet music for the first piece, OP117, was published with a few lines of poetry from a Scottish lullaby to help convey the mood, which is actually a very romantic bit of intertextuality, albeit devoid of political significance. Bellow, my babe, lie still in sleep. It grieves me sore to hear you weep. The music is, as one might expect with that introduction, basically a lullaby. It is pretty, and with slowly intertwining melodies, working on lightly different rhythms that definitely keeps things interesting. There are darker parts to the opus and faster parts, but they are unified by a rolling and dreamlike repetition. As I listened, however, I noted that it was basically impossible for me, a layman, to differentiate different parts of the music being played. The big block of text tries to walk you through different portions of the music as it goes on, but as these tracks are all part of the same composition, they're not really distinct on the record visually. Usually, most of you I'm sure are aware, on vinyl records there's, you know, a couple seconds of silence between each song, and so you can visually differentiate between the tracks, and that's where you drop the needle when you're trying to listen to a specific song. Well, because these different parts just move into one another, there's no, like, obvious break on the record. There's no numbers in some sort of digital display, because it's not a digital format. And, you know, if I'm not, like, super paying attention, uh, I just kind of lose track of what's going on. The, the track listings on the record give play times as to, you know, how long from the beginning of each side the different pieces start. But in order to get any value out of that, you need to have, like, a stopwatch. Did people do this? Was this a thing that people did back in the day? This seems insanely difficult to listen to music this way. Yeah, I just, I can't imagine, ugh. None of this would be a problem on a CD, which I guess is a thing for that format, though I remain as ever devoted to the sound experience of analog. This is all just a bit frustrating as it makes it difficult to organize my thoughts about the music or anything beyond a fully aggregate level of the music as a whole. Part of my issue here is the lack of a language for this type of music. If this was a pop song, I could comment on relative dynamics compared to other pop music and different structures, but that's sort of not workable here since classical music has different bass lines in terms of tempo and volume and just song structures and stuff like that. 
Alternatively, in pop music, I could talk about how different stylistic choices show influence from one genre or another. But if classical music has some sort of internal genre structure, I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know about it well enough to comment intelligently. So as far as I can tell, all of classical music is entirely self-referential, and it has a unique jargon to help people articulate what's going on, but that's jargon I basically do not have. Now, it should be said, this is not entirely unique to classical music. Other genres create jargon to deal with similar issues, but usually you don't need to know the jargon to properly appreciate the music. Like, you can enjoy reggae without knowing how to define the term rhythm. To be clear, rhythm is a technical term of art relating to the way bass lines are composed. Do you need to know that to enjoy Bob Marley? No, most people don't. It's fine. Of course, there is a massive irony in me complaining about elitism in music. Here I sit, in my basement that I have due to a job that I can work at without leaving my house, working on a podcast that is basically designed to have almost no mass appeal about an entirely arbitrary collection of music that I own, presently in a medium that is obsolete and today is valued only by members of the leisure class with enough disposable income to fritter it away on things like hobby collections and unnecessary stereo systems when most people listen to music on their phones through $1 pairs of earbuds. And I'm doing it during an international pandemic, a climate crisis, and a major war, and yet classical music really frustrates me on a unique level. I could attempt to say I'm different, but let's be honest. Everyone is an elitist prick about things in their own backyard. And most elitist pricks are actually just trying to geek out about something they love. And, you know, classical music people are the same way. And granted, when I go to an indie rock show, I'm not usually in a massive concert hall paid for by taxpayer subsidies. But I digress. Now that I'm paying attention and trying to differentiate between the tracks, I'm finding the task to be futile. To attempt to get some insight into the jargon that I could be using, I referred to the massive block of expository text on the back of the record jacket. This wall of text, written by James Durant, informs me that the first two parts of OP 118 are in A minor and OA major and form a congenial pair. It says that A minor is a passionate and masculine key with a soaring and striving character, while A major is a sweet and feminine song of love. To me, they just sound like a Russian dude playing the piano, and I suspect that the songs have neither genitalia nor chromosomes. Misgendering of music aside, I can see what he's talking about a bit. The first piece is kind of soaring and energetic, while the second is kind of flowery and intricate, a sort of musical doily. There are a lot of other interesting things that happen on this record. There are parts that seem like they're pretty influenced by ragtime or Hungarian folk music, both of which would be sort of reasonable in this time period. And I think the Hungarian music is talked about in the block of text. But in general, again, I'm just too lost in this situation to really talk intelligently. So instead, I'm going to comment on the block of text. In general, the experience is sort of like reading a description of wine or scotch on the label of a bottle at a liquor store. The people who write the copy aren't wrong or making anything up entirely from whole cloth. And if you're familiar with the jargon used in these situations, you might even get something from the text. I like scotch with notes of tobacco just as much as the next guy. For a random person off the street, you might see what they are talking about in retrospect, but it doesn't mean anything ahead of time, and it certainly provides no context for discussion in a podcast, where the host and producer is too afraid of copyright law to use musical samples. Now, to be fair to this entire situation, what we're doing here is entirely wrong. This music is being presented in entirely the wrong context. I think it's easy to forget that much of what we celebrate today is quote-unquote classical music was originally sold primarily as sheet music. 
especially when you're talking about things like music for quartets or pianos. In an era of an aspirational middle class, but well before the advent of streaming music services, CDs, records, or even radio, the first mass market for music was printed sheet music, which the family would play for entertainment on their own instruments at home. Families trained their kids in instruments not in the hope of raising their SAT scores or teaching them the value of practice, but because it made everyone's life better if they could get together each evening and listen to music. A kid with aptitude for playing music was a great asset to the entire family, and probably was just playing for enjoyment or out of sheer boredom. A family with a bunch of kids could pick up pieces for quartets, or the, the adults could get involved, or a couple households could come together, but even the smallest family could enjoy compositions on piano, the only Western instrument capable of accompanying itself. This is why the piano industry was so big, despite the fact that pianos were pretty expensive. Despite their expense, they were something that provided home entertainment for the entire family, even the neighbors. And that's why you have, hear stories about even people in tenements getting like the baby grands and stuff like that. Pianos were a real value-added item. Now they're mostly for show, which is why there's so many, unfortunately, so many pianos ending up in landfills these days. Of course, there were public recitals and renowned performers would draw huge crowds and concerts. But in some ways, these public performances were part of a marketing cycle intended in this period to sell sheet music to an upwardly mobile middle class seeking a way to get together and enjoy music as a family on a weekday night. All this should probably have gone in the earlier section about context, but during the long lyricless period as I've been listening to this, it has really reframed how I've been thinking about and listening to this music. Brahms was probably partly successful, because though this music is emotive and interesting, it isn't too complicated. I'm not a pianist, but I think someone of a basic skill level should be able to pick up most of this. It isn't too fast. There aren't too many times when you're playing diametrically opposed ends of the keyboard. Much of the effect and emotion of the performance comes in the different volume dynamics, which, in my recollection from playing saxophone in middle school, was not too easy to convey in sheet music. So there's definitely room for skill to become involved, but it should also be easy for someone to just pick up and work on playing while the paterfamilias enjoys his second nightcap and peruses a novel in front of the fire. Imagining myself as someone in that room, the musical choices here seem to make a bit more sense. This is indeed intended as sort of background music, but also something to be enjoyed by everyone without having a fight about it. Like modern EDM, it has an emotional impact that rewards attention and gestures you to provide that attention, but does not demand that attention the way a song with lyrics might. This is the kind of thing you can easily come in and out of on a cozy evening, drifting into your book in the quiet parts and giving attention during the more exciting parts, while politely waiting for the performer to take a break before discussing with them their performance and the interesting things about the composition. Actually, on that note of performance, I should mention Alexiev here. Russian classical musicians are sort of famous for being technical rather than emotional, you know, historically. <laughs> and it's, I, I don't know, I hear it's also kind of a stereotype. I don't have enough of a frame of reference to say how like, Alexiev does on that score, except to say that he manages the expressive elements of this in a way that seems like it captures the intention of Brahms very well and allows the music to be expressive and interesting. I can't think of a way to do it that would make it more arresting, and it doesn't seem flat or anything. It seems fully fleshed out and emotional, so it's probably fine. So I guess I will might as well wrap it up here. The music is fine, even enjoyable. 
I enjoyed the context here, learning about this period of Western music, and viewing it as a historical document helped me enjoy it more. There's a lot going on here that would reward listening by someone with an educated ear, and this particular record is, you know, well done. If you're into classical music, go get it. It's good. This is probably also too far out of my expertise to really give a verbal explanation of what Brahms was doing beyond writing some nice tunes for the piano. So maybe if you're a classical music enthusiast, don't take my word for it. As I have little to no background with Brahms, I have very little idea whether Dmitry Alexeev brought anything unique to this performance, but I can say that I enjoyed it, and I might even put it on again sometime when I need filler noise when I'm working. If the president of classical music happens to be listening, I do suggest that you do something about the quality of classical music criticism, but then maybe things have changed since 1977 when this record was pressed. In any case, it's not about the music, it's the fans. Hopefully next time we will get to a classical record, I'll have a bit more to say about the music itself. I'll definitely be able to speak more intelligently about next month's album, which is simply entitled Alba. I don't know if that's the band or the album name, but I know that the instruments include bagpipes and lutes, and Alba is a name for Scotland, so it is going to be more my kind of album. If you are listening ahead, be sure to check out the links in the show notes, along with all the links to the many, many references to the music I have name-checked today. Also, if you like the show, please be sure to like and review us on your podcatcher of choice, and if you have the resources, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. With that... All that remains is for me to thank you for listening and hope that you find some of the answers that you seek in your record collection. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 